In this episode of the UX Hustle podcast, I'm excited to welcome back Sophia Prater. Sophia is the founder and lead UX designer at Rewired and the chief evangelist of object-oriented UX. Sophia teaches her OUX methodologies at conferences, within companies, and through her OOUX certification program. She is the host of the OOUX Happy Hour Meetup and the OOUX Podcast. Sophia has brought the complexity untangling magic of OOUX to companies such as Facebook, MasterCard, Macy's, Credit Karma, HubSpot, Intercom, Delta Airlines, CNN, and many more. Sophia lives outside of Atlanta in the beautiful North Georgia mountains, the wine country of the Southeast United States, with her husband and business partner, Luke. In this episode, Sophia and I geek out about all things object-oriented UX and talk about entrepreneurship, what it takes to commit to your vision for your business and really your career. And Sophia gives us a sneak peek at her talk that she'll be giving at the UX Hustle Summit, September 24th and 25th, all about how OUX can help you future-proof your career. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the UX Hustle podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Worthington. The goal of UX Hustle is to help UX designers design the career they love, maximizing the benefit of this multifaceted industry and strong community. We talk about what's really going on in UX and what it's like working in it, and interview people that are actively navigating their careers and UX. We don't expect to have all the answers, but we do keep searching, keep listening, and learning. Because at the end of the day, you are the user of your career. Well, hi, Sophia. Welcome to the UX Hustle podcast. What's up, Amanda? <laughs> it's so it's so good to be back on the, on the other yes. side. On the other side. I know. I was going to say, how does it feel? <laughs> Feels pretty cool. Feels pretty good. I mean, I've interviewed you twice, and you've never interviewed me. So this is going to be fun. I know. I'm excited. And it's not like, you know, we don't talk all the time about UX Hustle <laughs> Summit and OUX and all the things, but I'm excited to have other people listen in on our conversation. I know. Our conversational gold that we're having that we're just not sharing with people. It's about time we selfish. start sharing it. Yeah, it's so <laughs> selfish. Well, awesome. So could you tell us a little bit about where you're at, about OUX, how you discovered OUX, and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, yeah, okay. So OUX, for those that don't know, is object-oriented UX. Um, I'll say that a little slower because I kind of just like, blah, blah, blah. object-oriented UX. Uh, so this is something that has sort of encompassed my entire life and worldview, uh, life, business, marriage even. We'll get into that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so my world is object-oriented UX. And the reason for that is is because I spent probably the first five years of my career incredibly frustrated. I went from job to job. I started at a large consulting company. You could go back and look at my LinkedIn history, and you can see that I barely spent more than a year at any given place because I would just get so frustrated. I would get so frustrated because I would be in these situations. So I'll kind of tell you about the um, the very first, my very first UX uh, assignment really was with this large consulting company. I get sent to Blue Cross Blue Shield. 
um, as a UX designer. And the product that was being redesigned was a B2B insurance package design product. So the end users were insurance consultants internal to Blue Cross Blue Shield building packages for large enterprise corporations for their employees. I was about 24 years old, 25 years old, barely understood my own health insurance, much less enterprise B2B health insurance. And I got there on Monday and I was basically given a folder of a bunch of Axure files from the previous UX designer at all different stages of completion and all different sort of iterations of UI and kind of just moving the pieces around. And and I was expected to go through them and uh, make them better. <laughs> uh, maybe add a few other screens. Oh, we have this other use case. Can you add some more screens to make sure that we have this other use case accounted for? Uh, and can we see some wireframes by Friday? And I, again, knew nothing about the business. I didn't have any time to really understand the structure of what I was actually supposed to design. Um, and I, by nature, am a pretty rebellious person. I knew that this didn't make sense. So I pushed back on it. Um, and I, you know, it was just too fast to be doing wireframes. I didn't understand what I was designing. I would just be, you know, moving moving the deck chairs around on the on the sinking Titanic. So I brought brought some stakeholders together. And I had this moment where I was whiteboarding and all the stakeholders were sitting around and I was listening to them. And I was basically taking what I was hearing and turning it into diagrams on the whiteboard. And I wasn't drawing screens, though. I, I was just drawing uh, logic, basically. I was drawing out business rules. And everybody in the room, it was like five or six people in the room, are kind of nodding and smiling and like realizing like, oh yeah, yeah, this is what we want to build. And I had this moment of like, like things clicking into place. And it was just this beautiful moment of like, yes, this is, this is where I'm making real change. Um, and this is the type of thing that I need to do before I start designing screens. Okay. Fast forward, like another five years, those moments of like bringing clarity to the business and really trying to understand what we were actually trying to build were very few and far between incredibly few and far between. Most of it was very frustrating. I was constantly felt like I was being rushed into wireframes without getting, seeing the full picture. Um, like I was kind of had a, like a rusty old flashlight. <laughs> I was sort of like shining this rusty old flashlight around that kept flickering and I could never really like get the full big picture of what I was trying to design. And then, um, I, I, I made it to, uh, I worked at a lot of different agencies on lots of different different projects, different industries. It was kind of the same story over and over again. I ended up at CNN as a UX designer uh, at CNN. And after about a year there, I got brought onto the election results project. So basically what people see on CNN.com on election night. So this is 2012 election. So a pretty big election. Uh, that was uh, Barack Obama's second election. A lot of people were watching that. And I was designing what was going to be on CNN. And that was the very first responsive design that I did. And it was absolutely crazy to be doing this as a responsive design. I mean, we had never done responsive design before at CNN. Uh, for some perspective, CNN.com as a whole did not launch as a responsive website until 2015 until three years later. 
So us <laughs> doing a responsive design wow. in 2012 was kind of a big deal and a huge experiment for like what is to CNN is like Super Bowl Sunday. Like they make a lot of money on election night and you really don't want that to break. Um, so it was a whole lot of pressure. It was a crazy timeline. I had never done responsive design before. And something that my grandfather, as an engineer, had always told me that the more moving parts, the more likely it is to break. Anything is to break. And that had always really resonated with me. And that was the first time that I really started thinking about creating a system of reusable parts and not designing page by page. Everything else in my career, like even that first moment at Blue Cross Blue Shield was kind of like thinking about that big picture and thinking about... um, this kind of reduced set of moving parts, but it really all sort of clicked into place when doing that design for CNN election results. And that design was a success. That's kind of what got me on the speaking stage, um, which turned into workshops. And the we can go into more detail because I know I've already been like, blah, 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 blah for quite a bit. But the workshops then turned into teaching workshops at companies. So people actually bringing me in to train their teams in object-oriented UX. And through all of this teaching and then practicing with my own clients after starting my own business, it just continued. I was continuously improving the process and the methodologies. So it just continued to coalesce and coalesce to the point where I realized I needed something bigger to teach people because I was doing these three-day workshops at companies and I still wasn't teaching everything that I was using in my own consulting work. And that's where the the certification came along, which first was nine weeks and then became 10 weeks. And still, that's a very, it's a pretty intense 10-week 10 um, 10 program. But that's where I can kind of go over all of my tools and philosophies. And that's really, that's where I am now is um, is working on and, and teaching cohorts of the, uh, the OUX certification. Yes. And as someone who is OUX certified and went through your certification program, it is robust. And it's been interesting even seeing how the certification program has evolved in the last year. Oh, yeah. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's why like the first three cohorts that we did in 2020, I was doing them all. All the the lecture delivery was done as as you know and as you suffered through three-hour live Zoom calls. And if you happen to miss one of those Zoom calls, you are conscripted to re-watch an unedited three-and-a-half-hour sometime Zoom call. So in cohort four, we actually were like, okay. And, and that was that was needed because I wanted to sort of – I wanted to iterate, right? And I like doing pre-recorded video, you have all this kind of production work that goes into it, all the editing – and I wasn't ready to kind of invest all that production work until we really had the format right. So the first three cohorts uh, were also priced accordingly because uh, they were sort of guinea pigs, um, just trying to really get getting all of the the modules in the right, you know, figuring out the right order to teach stuff and some of those stickier concepts like junction objects and tree systems and oh gosh, inheritance, like figuring out the best way to teach that took a, took a few tries. So it wasn't until cohort four that we sort of, the dust settled and I felt ready to commit to actually creating some video and putting it up on a portal. Yeah. I mean, and that makes so much sense too, of being confident with the process that you have, with the delivery. And that's such a different form of communicating, of teaching, from those mm-hmm. workshops that are specific for, you know, the audience that paid for them and is attending versus, you know, 
I mean, putting through a certification that is encompassing everything there is to know about OUX. <laughs> it's everything. <laughs> it's it's my opus, basically. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm curious about, because I know the structure of the OUX certification program is now the course materials, as well as an online community, as well as a certification test. Yes. Yes. And so through that online community, how has, how has that influenced OUX as a whole, the certification program, your business, and even, you know, your how you've been interpreting OUX and evolving it going forward. Oh my gosh. It's, I mean, it's crazy because I kind of rolled my eyes at this idea of online community, Um, even moving into everything we dealt with in 2020. um, I was like, can you really create authentic connections through an online community? And it was kind of like, oh, that's what I was seeing other courses do. So I was like, okay, like there probably needs to be some sort of forum. And it was also a way, really the way it started is a way for people to post their assignments Uh, because I look at every single assignment and I was like, well, it should be public. Like everybody should be able to see each other's assignments so you can kind of compare and contrast, see what other people are doing because people are doing different projects. So if you're doing project X and somebody else is doing project Y, you could see the same stuff of the process being handled in two different domains, which was very useful. So it was a kind of a more like public sharing of of the assignments is how it really started. But it really grew from that. And I would say, um, you know, people commenting on, on each other's posts, people asking questions. Also, really just the level of detail of feedback that I was giving again, sort of helped <laughs> helped the uh, help the material become stronger. We're also kind of coming up with our own vocabulary. I mean, one of the things that I preach a lot about OAUX is making sure to have really clear labels for things. And this is something that I see in so many businesses, even very complex businesses, where you can have a team of people trying to make complex business software. And let's say we're working together on this project. And Amanda, you're calling something X and I'm calling it Y, but it's the same thing. So two different words, two different labels for the same thing. And then move over to another part of the system and we're caught, we're using the same word for two different things and multiply that by 20 terms where sometimes we're using two different words for the same thing. Sometimes we're using the same word for different things and we're trying to build complex software. So this is something that I teach as far as a fundamental principle of OUX is like, get your terms right. Like figure out what are the important things, get clear labels and get everybody on the same page on what those things are. And then we were realizing there were things within, to get really meta, there were things within some of the frameworks that we didn't have clear words for. And even patterns, kind of like inheritance is an, uh, was a big piece. So like in different types of inheritance patterns and really getting to a clear language. So we would talk about those things. So like one of them is a certain type of inheritance that we're now calling tree systems. And this was after a whole lot of research, especially in the dev community, of seeing, is there an existing term for this? So there's always been that, like, let's try to see if there's an existing term. People are already using this. Okay, no, it doesn't seem like there is an existing term. Let's geek out on figuring out what to call this thing. Um, So there's been so much collaboration on this is a thing. We need to figure out what to call this thing. Also, what is the best way to teach this thing? 
So I've gotten better at OUX through giving so much feedback and helping people through their own projects as well. I mean, it's just it's just been there's there's people that I've been on so many Zoom calls with. It's just shocking to me that we haven't met in person. Like I forget that we haven't met in person that because they're halfway around the world. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about the community that's been really, really interesting is the job board. And the fact that I'm getting like two, I'm adding like one to two new job posts a week. And I feel like that's going to continue to snowball as more and more people get certified because what's happening is somebody gets certified. It's like, once you go, oh, oh, you don't go back. Like <laughs> you, just, you can't unsee this stuff. Um, so once uh, people get certified, usually when there's an open position on their team, they want another person that has certified, that has that is thinking in this way. So they'll go to the job board and post their job. And we've had this year, um, and I know this doesn't seem like a lot, but we're just getting going, right? Uh, I think we've had four or five people be hired through that job board. So OUXer hiring another OUXer, which is, I mean, that is real life-changing. That's huge. That, 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 that's life-changing stuff right there. So, um, I mean, that's really real material life change. Um, you're actually changing your job through this community, which is, which is pretty freaking cool. That's amazing. I mean, and especially when, and it's so true, as somebody who has drank the OUX Kool-Aid for a while, um, you really can't unsee it. I use it in all of my projects. I use it all the time. Like when I, <laughs> I use it on my sales calls, like my clients know <laughs> what OUX is. And to be able to leverage that knowledge and geek out and continue to delve into it in a new job where you know that that's valued, that's huge. And I mean, you use it in your portfolio course, the the UX portfolio power play. And I love that because it's you in the course, you're kind of OOUXing yourself, your professional self. <laughs> and that's definitely something like OOUX can apply to non-digital things. OOUX can apply to we are learning about, well, this is digital, but oh, we, we have somebody that's using OOUX for voice UI. I was, um, I've been working with a guy named Cornell Hillman. He's um, been interviewed on my podcast and been at OOUX happy hour. I was actually recently quoted in his book, which is called UX for XR, XR being the umbrella term for VR and augmented reality and mixed reality. So there's some folks in the XR world, which is really more of kind of like the gaming industry, but now they're starting to really understand that they need to be looping in more UX and realizing that object-oriented UX is actually a really great fit because you're simulating the real world <laughs> you're simulating and what is the real world made of it's made of things it's made of objects right so um so that's really cool but yeah you can definitely use it to OUX your life OUX your project um it's uh it's pretty cool yeah I mean especially because it unlinks that the way we think about pages <laughs> like we're not page-based anymore we're object-based and that objects make up everything so it, it really does you can use it in anything yeah i mean i've started getting into notion through lisa lombardi and i'm OUXing everything now <laughs> yes i mean and that's that's the really cool thing because OUX is i mean it's how humans think but it's also how 
a lot of developers think because this is it's database design. It's, Absolutely, I mean, a database. Well, a database design is basically defining objects and then holding a bunch of instances of objects. And then if it's a relational database, you're showing how all those things connect, and that's what's powering so much of the digital world. It's powered by databases. So. Uh, the cool thing about that is now is now a lot of people are doing database design that are not developers. So anybody that's geeking out in Notion or Airtable or Webflow's CMS or any of these other uh, low-code or no-code app builders, you kind of have to understand conceptually at least how a database works. You don't need to know MySQL or like know how to code it, but to conceptually understand the the back end of these systems is a it's it's a it's a power skill you need to be able to understand that if you want to be able to be building that kind of thing and be building in those kind of ways absolutely i mean i remember going through the ux boot camp and that was one of the things i was surprised more people weren't talking about back then or even i mean through you oh ux people are now but I was like, why is everyone talking about learning HTML and CSS? I feel like the database is the part that we should yeah. be learning more about because that's the stuff that isn't changing, that isn't oh, easy to yeah. change. And that's the stuff that when a developer says that they have constraints that you're butting up against, that's what they're talking about. Yeah, it's not HTML and it's CSS not HTML. constraints. <laughs> yeah. We can figure that out. All right. Exactly. Um, yes. No, it's this database doesn't talk to that database and we're going to have to build a crazy freaking API or something or some middleware um, or that field doesn't exist or that that information exists, but it's locked up in a blob of a description. And yep. we would need to build some scripting of natural language processing to extract that and put it into a separate field. I mean... And for anybody listening who like this, this is you, there's, this is no harm, no foul, but because it's not being taught, it really isn't being taught, but I can't tell you how many UX designers I have trained in my workshops who really don't know what metadata is, like don't understand the concept of metadata and how like, that's what helps you sort and filter a list of instances of objects, like not understanding what metadata is and how metadata, you have values and you need structure around metadata. That's something that UX designers really need to have a, have be very intimate with. And um, it's just not something that's being taught and it needs to be. If we're going to, if we want to grow our dominion and continue to tackle harder and harder and more complex projects. And if if we want to get out of surface level design, which I think a lot of UX designers are stuck doing surface level design, which comes back to what I was what I was being asked to do at Blue Cross Blue Shield, which I was talking to somebody last week. I was on a mentoring call last week, and it was the same story. This is still happening. Hey, here's some files that the other UX designer did two months ago. Can you look at these? We need a few extra screens, and can you kind of pretty these up a little bit? And no understanding of the complex business behind it. <laughs> this is still happening. So how do we change this? Object-oriented UX. Um, I mean, <laughs> that's one way, but, like, that's easier said than done, of course. I mean, I think 100% object-oriented UX is the answer. Like, that is the answer to being able to do – or it's a answer. 
there's probably other answers out there. It's the best answer that I've heard, and it's my answer, and I've got the microphone right now. So <laughs> object-oriented UX all the way for the win is going to help UX designers do a very important thing, which is bring the business and bring the stakeholders into the weeds in a way that is very time effective because usually stakeholders are busy and stakeholders can tend to gloss over complexity and think that it's not that complicated and think, can you just make this more user friendly and not understand, well, if I'm going to make this more user friendly, like I need to understand the difference between a product and a product variation. Um, what actually is a product? What's a product variation? What is um, how many products can go into an order? Is an order can only can an order only have one type of product, or can it have multiple types of products? Can an order actually go to multiple locations, or can an order only like for whatever the system is? So we need to be able to understand those types of business rules and. To do that, we need to bring our subject matter experts and our stakeholders into the process so that we can extract their knowledge from their head in a way that is super time efficient, right? Because they don't want to feel like they're wasting their time. And I think what happens often with stakeholders is we get into sessions with them. Uh, we UX designers will pull them into sessions and it feels a little fluffy, and when it feels a little fluffy, it's hard to get more time. If we feel like we're kind of, um, you know, beating around the bush um, and we're not, you know, rubber's not hitting the road to just throw out a bunch of um, metaphors, then we're not going to position in our, ourselves in a place where we can continue to bring them in and get buy-in and get them to get bought into the complexity and get them asking questions as well. Because that's what happens when the stakeholders start getting invested in the questions and realizing that there's all these assumptions like, oh, actually, we didn't think about an order getting shipped to multiple locations. We might need to go back to the end users to talk to them about that. Like, is that a scenario? Is that a use case? Um, the developers need to know about that, too, for sure. And then from a user interface perspective, we need to be able to select multiple locations for an order and say that this, this order here needs to go to... Um, you know, every single target in Florida, right? Or can an order, do we have to create new instances of orders? And so what can I do to that order? Can I, uh, can I duplicate that order and automatically duplicate it so that it goes to all the different locations? Like how really should that work? Because I have to build screens for that. And I, I know I'm on a soapbox here, but there's one other thing that I'll say before I let you ask a question, because <laughs> this is something that really came to light. Like I just, last week, on this mentoring call, I was like, the problem, what happens is when we are designing complex business, like think of, again, going back to me at Blue Cross Blue Shield. If I'm just going to design screens and not really understand all this complexity and all these use cases and how all these, ob what, what these objects are, how they fit together, what their attributes are, what people want to do to them. If I'm not really clear on that, and I'm redesigning some screens in complex business software, this is what's going to happen. This is what the risk is. The risk is I might make it worse. I might make it prettier and make it more ergonomic, but if I haven't gone underneath the hood to really figure out what people need, you take a piece of complex business software, ugly as sin, complex business software, all right? You've got people that have been using that for seven years since the last redesign, and they know all their little hacks. 
They hate that software. They might be using 10% of it, but they know how to get stuff done because they have all their little sticky notes. They have all their, like, their own bookmarks. And they know the three or four things that they do in that software 18 times a day. They know exactly their little click pass and how to get it done. What I do when I pretty up those screens <laughs> is I just move everything around. And at first, it might be like, oh, this looks nicer. It looks like maybe it's more easy to use. And then when it actually sucks because we haven't actually gone beneath the surface and I've just moved stuff around, I've actually made the software worse. And how many times is that happening? So if you're working at an agency or you're working internally, you're gonna end up releasing something that there's a very, very high risk that your users are gonna reject it. Yes, that's super true. I mean, you're better off just not doing, don't, if you're an, if you're an agency, don't charge half a million dollars for a redesign unless you're gonna actually get your hands dirty into the information architecture. If you're just gonna be moving screens around, just let the screens be, because it, probably it's, it's gonna be better off just leaving it. Hmm. Yeah. And then nobody wants that. Like nobody as a as a UX designer, what is like the worst fear is spending, uh, you know, months on a design and then you release it and it's worse. That's the worst. <laughs> no, we are UX designers. We are idealistic people who want to make the world a better place. The last thing we want is to make things worse. But yeah, just prettying something up and kind of like making it more ergonomic here and there. You probably should just not touch it at all. That's some really great advice. And if you're being forced to do that, then I would bubble bubble up the risk. It is your job. I mean, it is your job to help your managers or the decision makers understand that risk. Um, I know that's a hard thing to say, um, especially if you're a more junior designer and you're being put into these positions where you don't get the bandwidth to actually the bandwidth or the scope. I mean, scope is a whole other big problem in our industry of just trying just to figure out, wait, what are we actually doing here? Like, what is, what are we, what are we trying to accomplish? How deep can we get in to the information architecture into these systems? I don't, I mean, I don't have a developer to ask these questions to, or I don't, I'm, you know, I'm just being asked to make this screen better. Well, what does that actually mean? And again, that comes back to designing screens in isolation you know, or designing a feature in isolation, and we, we might improve a piece of it, but now it's inconsistent with the other piece. So uh, in a way, we've actually, the, the kludge factor has gone up, actually. Right. And I think something that you said earlier about terminology and about using terminology <laughs> and getting everybody on the same page in alignment, being able to break down those barriers between different teams between different groups that are working on, you know, different aspects of a product and being able to bring people together in order to do that is such is so powerful and such a powerful tool to have in your tool belt as a designer and just in your career in general. I mean, and it's so for for those that are listening, if you get anything out of this, like it is a tool to ask good questions. And that tool is, this is the this step one of OUX here is what I like to call noun foraging. So go through your existing system, maybe your competitor's system, any other documentation around your system, the marketing site, um, user interviews, basically take a bunch of sources, pull those sources together and go noun foraging. Look for the nouns that get used over and over and over again. Those nouns, especially those nouns that are actually represented in the software, look at those nouns and start, like, put them 
put them on sticky notes. It'd be great if they were blue because we like to put objects on blue. Um, but <laughs> so get them on sticky notes or just making a list on a piece of paper and start grouping them. So we have like, do you have a bunch of nouns that are maybe synonyms, but you're not sure? So look for those and, and, and ask your stakeholders, ask whoever those subject matter experts are, are these things the same thing or are these two different things? So I was working with a large airline, a flight and a trip. Are those the same thing? This, this is a real conversation. Um, okay. And then there's a leg. I've heard the term leg before too, or segment. Like is a segment and a leg the same thing? Again, like this is for complex B2B software for this large airline that we're trying to build. And all these terms are getting thrown around. I need to be very clear about the difference between these. And that one conversation on, okay, is a flight and a trip the same thing? Turns out, no, that they're not the same thing. But it turned into a 15-minute conversation with people actually arguing with each other on whether they were the same thing or not. So those can start really, really valuable conversations. Then start looking at things that you feel are different, but you're not sure how they're different. So if it's like, okay, these two things are different, then it's how do they relate to each other? Is one thing part of another thing? Is a segment part of a leg? Is a leg part of a segment? So how do those things work together? If, it, if it's true that a leg and a segment are different things, what is the relationship between those things? Start writing definitions of those things get really clear on what those things are and how they sit in context of each other. Um, if you just <laughs> make that your job um, before you design screens and that will result in having to ask a whole lot of questions, I guarantee those will all turn into really good conversations and hopefully your team will realize the value of making sure that those things are all ironed out before you get into screen design. Well, and the documentation that you create out of that which through your certification program, you have artifacts that are created at every step in your process. And so when you have those artifacts, those are the things that you can pass off between different designers. In the example you gave earlier with Blue Cross Blue Shield of here's dumping a bunch of <laughs> Axure designs. Instead, it's here's all this actual valuable information Here's what this terminology means. Here's uh -huh. how they relate. These objects relate to each other. Here's open questions that we still have that maybe we haven't tackled yet. Yes. And then you can have those. You have, and those are so much better than like needing notes <laughs> from the stakeholders. And you don't have to go back to those same stakeholders asking those same questions. You can ask them new and better questions based on wherever you're at in your project and what's left to discover, uncover. 100%. I mean, I've had so many people in the in workshops or in the certification just saying, these are just going to be really great for onboarding. Yes. <laughs> so this kind of the object guide, which is basically a, a glossary uh, on steroids, is turns into a living, breathing document that it's like, oh, you got a new person on the team, plot the object guide in front of them, and they can learn all the terms and all the relationships. Learning how to read an object map takes about five minutes. And then after you know how to read that, you basically have this bird's eye x-ray vision of completely, bird's eye x-ray vision of the system completely separated from presentation. So that, set, that bird's eye x-ray vision of the system 
could apply to a voice UI, could apply to an Apple Watch, could apply to your kiosk, could apply also to your website and your marketing site. So um, I've never made this comparison before, so I don't know how fair this is, but it's almost like a headless, C- like a conceptual headless CMS that's made of sticky notes. So that it's like that information could go to so many different places. It could go to the database. It could go to the screens. It could really, that information could and knowledge could apply to so many different manifestations right because it's interfaceless yeah there's it's It's solution based instead of product based yeah and it's that's so interesting i hadn't really thought of that i don't know if that's actually fair to say that it's like (laughs) kind of a (laughs) that might be a stretch as far as an analogy but basically yeah there's no it's it's x-ray vision of the actual stuff so um, should I just kind of like talk through what an object map is real quick? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, cause I, we don't have a visual cause since we're audio right now, but basically an object map is a bunch of columns and each column represents an object. So, and everything in the column, it just, it lists out all of the attributes. So metadata and core content, but it also lists the relationships with the other objects. So you can kind of see how, let's say I have an event so I might say I have event at the top, and then I have, um, I got the name of the event, I've got an image to represent the event, I've got start time, end time, I might have a, the price of the event, the description, I might have a status, like is the event in the past, or is it in the future, or is it happening now? Um, I might have people going to the event. Well, people are another object, or person is another object. So that's going to be what we call a nested object, and it's going to show that there's a relationship there between the event and people going. And then I can go over to the person column and see we've got first name, last name, email address, profile picture, um, uh, status on, on whether they have RSVP'd yes or no to the event. Uh, so that it basically maps all of um, all that information out. What are the objects? How do we break down sort of the chemical makeup of those objects by attribute and also showing their relationships? And it's so really it's very similar if um, if we've got any content strategists listening or, um, or or developers, it's very similar to an entity relationship diagram that actually includes attributes, but it's a whole lot more scalable. It actually shows pretty much the same information, but it's more scalable because you don't end up with that bowl of spaghetti um, with all the arrows going and crossing each other over. And also you can have an object that has 160 attributes, which if you work for a, let's say a healthcare, if you're designing uh, medical healthcare records, your patient <laughs> object probably has more than 160 attributes and try like have fun putting that in an, into an entity relationship diagram. It's just, does it just breaks basically. So it's, pretty much a, a more collaborative way. I mean, you can do it through sticky notes, color-coded sticky notes, um, and everybody can easily get involved with it and kind of get that same get that same x-ray vision. Yeah. No, it's great. It's great. And you can build it in so many different ways, like collaboratively with sk- sticky notes and in Miro, now that so many of us are remote, uh-huh. or in your certification program using Trello. Yep. Yep. We use all those tools. I mean, I'm very excited. I'm going to be doing a in-person 
workshop at Front Conference in Salt Lake City later this year. It'll be my first in person since COVID. Um, and I'm just like, oh, we're going to get like real sticky notes and we're going to be moving them around and we're all going to like be be sniffing Sharpie markers. There is something <laughs> to be said if you can get in a room together, um, if that is possible. There's just something really beautiful about like locking yourself in an OUX war room and just having a sticky explosion. Yes. Yes. The OUXers love language is sticky notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I do want to shift a little to your career and how it's evolved and how, you know, entrepreneurship and how did you get involved in entrepreneurship? Um, how has your business evolved and changed over time? And, you know, what was what was that like? Yeah, I mean, I've always I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, rewired, so I started Rewired in 2014, and that was the third time I tried to start my own consulting, a uh, contract, freelance, whatever you call it. Basically, it was the third time I tried to go out on my own in a five year career. <laughs> so basically, so I I started. Let's say I got my first UX job in 2009. Yeah, so it was five years in. Um, and it was the third time. It, the first two times, I you know started getting some clients, but then I didn't have a long enough runway. I didn't have uh, my my network wasn't strong enough. My just I guess design maturity wasn't strong enough. I wasn't using OUX. And if I look back on it, really, like I think that that's what made me so successful in 2014 because I the, I had the beginnings of Objectorian UX and I immediately started using it with my clients, which were all startups in Atlanta. So I kind of like went into the startup niche by accident. My One of my first clients was in the startup world. We used a precursor of object-oriented UX. I wasn't even calling it at that point, but it was really successful. Um, they did not... Springbot did not redesign their main navigation and their main information architecture. They didn't go back to it until last year, which like makes me feel really great actually that from 2013 that's like god, I don't know. I'm like more than 6 or 6 or 7 years, right? Before they actually were like, okay, now we've grown so much and we have so many new features, we need to rethink this. Um so it was successful, so they started so you know, kind of word got around and I was able to kind of get the ball rolling mm-hmm. as a consultant. And in the beginning, I took a few projects that were not particularly OUX. Um, as soon by 2015, when I, I wrote the Alista Part article that did really well at the end of 2015, October 2015, by that point, I was able to be selective enough with my clients that, and I just didn't want to do UX any other way. So from around, yeah, 2016 or so, all of my client work was specifically OUX. People were coming to me for it, and I was slowly selling more workshops. So going and doing it at conferences, and then usually there would be a few people at the conference that would want to bring the workshop into their company. And I grossly undercharged for that for the first few years because I didn't know what I was doing. And yeah, I guess I was still um, still practicing my craft as well. So it's only fair. But um, but yeah, that was, um, I remember the first year that I realized that about 30% of my income uh, was coming from the workshops. And then that's where I was having the most fun too. And I still really enjoy the consulting. The past two years, I've been so focused on getting the certification up and running and just making that 
just amazing, an amazing experience. I'm UXing it. So like I want to just make it so smooth for people and just really, I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult program, but I want to give everybody the white glove treatment. So I'm always thinking about new ways to make that better. So that really has been my focus since about the end of 2019. And I've done just like very small client projects. It's usually going and running a workshop. So doing some training and then running an OUX session with the company and then maybe doing like my deliverable is usually an object map, maybe a few light wire frames. So those are like two, three week projects here and there because they're super fun for me um, and kind of like keep me sharp. I don't want to like, I don't want to end up where I'm in a situation where I'm just teaching and I'm not actually getting my hands dirty. So I'm wanting to do, you know, at least two or three of those a year. But those are really short term and just very kind of high level strategy through the lens of Optidorian UX. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I think it's so interesting as you add more things to your business. It's now it's, okay, how do I balance these out? How do I kind of turn the dial between what I want to work on right now and what I want to leave room for uh-huh. is always an interesting challenge that I always run into in my business as well. Yeah. And like what to move into as well, mm-hmm. because I mean, it's just so exciting, like all of these no code, low code tools. I mean, there's just so many other, I'm just going to throw a bunch of stuff out there and um, I'm just going to make commitments. <laughs> I'm going to make public commitments here, but like we really want to do a Webflow course because the other courses out there with Webflow are very front end, like front end first. And then the CMS is a, the content management system is an afterthought and which totally goes against how we build sites and Webflow. I mean, it's, I mean, it's the object map gets translated into a CMS and we get a bunch of content in and then we start designing the front end screens. So I really want to create a course around that. I know it's crazy. It's crazy how backwards. I can't imagine doing yeah, I can't imagine doing the opposite. Like, how do you design... And then shove everything in. ...something when I you don't, don't know, know what it is. I don't know <laughs> like... how that happens, but people are doing it right and left. Um, and that's how it's being taught. Mm-hmm. Let's design some screens and throw some warm Ipsum in there. Like, it's just crazy. Like, as much as we've talked about content is king and... I don't know. It still just hasn't gotten through the thick skull of, of our industry, really. Uh, it's it's still... We're, we're still still fighting that good fight. But yeah, I mean, we really would like to to build some some other courses, and then like with these these other kind of app tools. So Adalo is one that like, oh my gosh, you know, I've worked with Adalo before on their act their app, and want to like really learn Adalo and start making some of our own apps. So that's still something that like that that form of entrepreneurism. So we're like right now, my form of entrepreneurism is the is the teaching right so it's it's uh it's it's learning products basically but we would love to like actually create some of our own apps we've got an idea for a tree identification app and all sorts of other cool stuff so there's so many ideas and i just have to always keep reminding myself that you can do anything but you can't do everything (laughs) at least you can't do everything all at once so prioritization is something that i definitely am always having to come back to and think about like I've read twice I've read the one thing because I I, that hasn't gotten through my thick skull of really like what is what is the one thing to focus on right now and and we have been good about that being the certification course 
but still there's quite a few irons in the fire because everything's just so exciting. Yep. I totally, (laughs) I totally understand that. There's, there's always so many opportunities and especially when you have the mindset of being open to those opportunities and open to seeing them. And then it's the question of, like you said, prioritizing. And so can you talk a little bit about how you prioritized the certification program in this last year and what that was like and what were some of the things that you did in order to prioritize it? So a couple of things happened in 2019. So one is people were asking me for larger and larger training packages. So it was like, okay, can I do a four day? Um, so it just, it, it kind of, and, and then even in these like three and four day boot camps that I was running, um, like I think for Facebook, I did three and a half days at Facebook, um, which for them was, it's amazing that they like, that team was able to take that amount of time out. That usually doesn't happen though. But even after all that time, it was like, we patched so much into those few days and I realized like there would have been, it would have been nice if there was space in between <laughs> those sessions so it could sink in and they could, you know, work on some things by themselves. So I was already thinking about changing some formatting. But at that point, like we hadn't, it hadn't even occurred to me to offer remote workshops and to say like, for example, the Facebook client. So, hey, Facebook, maybe I don't fly to New York and stay there for four days. Maybe we do this remotely. And we hang out for three hours on a Friday for 10 weeks. Like that, that format hadn't even occurred to me. It was like, well, no, why wouldn't we do this not in any other way than in person? So the other thing that happened is I was realizing I couldn't go as deep as I wanted. Like I, like I mentioned earlier, I wasn't able to teach all the tools that I was using. I needed more time. And I knew that like, I mean, if three and a half days was like, that's kind of the max that a company could really take out for training, I needed a different format. Another thing that I started seeing was OUX kind of getting twisted in ways online. I was seeing, oh my goodness, I was seeing some crazy color coding out there. Um, Yes, objects on blue, core content on yellow, metadata on pink, uh, calls to action on green. Uh, and the the reason that I'm so such a stickler about that is I want people to, I want that visual language for people to be able to read each other's object maps. If you're moving the colors around, you can't do that. So I was seeing like objects in orange and I was like, oh my God, no, objects in orange, sacrilege. And then also I was seeing people that maybe had had like a half day workshop or had read a few articles and they were doing object-oriented UX, but they were reverting back to that UI thinking. And the objects were components instead of the actual real-world valuable things. So we don't need to model the calendar picker. We model the event, right? That's the thing that the user is actually coming for. Like nobody's nobody's coming to your website to play with your calendar picker or your drop-down or your t- ticky box. Like those are all means to an end. So um, some like, there was some wire crossing happening because people were reading a few articles and more power to them applying it, but it was losing uh, the, uh, some of it was missing the point. So I realized that I wanted to have some governance around it. There was, some people were recommending that I needed to like patent the process or get some kind of IP or something, which just felt crazy to me. Like there's, this is a, it's definitely an open source process. Like anybody can use this and how would I ever enforce, (laughs) you 
you know, people like not being able to use the process. Um, so that didn't really feel like an option at all. But I did want a way to to make sure we have a shared language, make sure that we have a shared, a shared visual language, a shared verbal language, and that it was kind of um, using air quotes here, but like being done right and being done in the proper spirit. So um, that's where the, I was like, I got to make a certification so I can go deep with people. And so that there can be sort of um, these evangelists out there that really deeply know this and can go and bring it to their company. So that was the sort of like, all right, we got to do this certification. That's how it got prioritized and um, and just really wanting to scale it as well. I mean, the, the problem with those live workshops is I have to be there. The certification only scales so much. We had 30 people in the last cohort. Um, we're doing 40 people in this cohort that enrollment is open. So we're doing 40 people. And the reason I feel comfortable doing 40 people is because in during cohort four, it was 30 people and I was doing the recording all at once. So it was a lot. So everything, all the lectures are recorded. So those 40 people for 10 weeks are going to be like, they will be my life, 100% of my life. But I can only, I think I can only scale it that far. I, I don't want it to, I don't want the experience to break down because we're trying to pack too many people in there. It's, it is a lot of one-on-one, but but what we do have now is we have all that content that's recorded and it has a portal. So we are offering a self-paced option. So if we're, because we're only doing the cohort twice a year. So if you want to go ahead and jump in to all this 22 hours of video content, nicely chunked out high quality video um, with timestamps too, you can go ahead and get that. So that helps me get this training into people's hands without me having to be there. That was definitely motivation as well. And as far as prioritizing it, I mean, we saved up money, got a runway, and uh, I took about four months to build it, actually, to, to build it and structure, not even do the filming, but really just kind of, because that was still live, but to really plan out the course before we did our first cohort. Wow. And that was before or after you moved to the mountains? <laughs> That was before. So that was the end of like basically like the end of 2019. I wrapped up, I think it was after UX Hustle Summit mm-hmm. 2019 and I was exhausted <laughs> <laughs> and got sick and gave you UX Hustle Summit. I was like, please <laughs> take this. And, and you were like, I said, yes, I would love to. <laughs> yeah, that was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment. Um, but yes, I basically took that time that like, I guess, October, November, December to to really to kind of learn how to do a course and how to create a com- community. Um, I did a lot of like uh, other people's courses on how to create a course and kind of trained myself on how to do it and the best way to create it. And then launched right before COVID, um, the first cohort started. So the first cohort actually, COVID hit right in the middle of that, which was fun. Um, but then we uh, moved to the mountains in... I think, I think actually it was just around this time last year. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was right before 2020 UX Hustle. Yeah. The mountains. So this is. The mountains. <laughs> the mountains. <laughs> All of them. Uh, yeah. Anybody in Atlanta, not in Atlanta is like, well, what mountains? So North Georgia mountains. So I'm about 90 minutes outside of Atlanta now, like at the um, foot of the Appalachian Trail, basically. Yep. And a gorgeous, gorgeous, very scenic location. Gorgeous view of the mountains. 
Yes, walking distance to a winery. That's about all we're walking distance to. But. <laughs> so that's all you need. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then in the last year, you've around that same time, you brought on a new team member. Yes. Um, yes, that's been interesting. So during COVID, so my husband, Luke, is an electrical engineer by trade. Um, he actually, before he was an electrical engineer, he ha- he had a journalism degree and actually worked at CNN. We did not work at CNN at the same time. Um, so he's actually a very good writer as well as a detail-oriented engineering person. And um, when COVID hit, Pretty soon, a few weeks after COVID hit, when everybody was getting furloughed, his company, which he was working in, um, in like firearms training systems, and so nobody was implementing those anymore. The factory was shut down, so he got a seven-week furlough. I believe it was paid, actually. Was it paid? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Irrelevant. Uh, but he was basically not working for seven weeks, and I was like... <sighs> Oh, honey, I have things for you to do. (laughs) That honey-do list got a lot longer. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, But it was not like, oh, we need a fence in our backyard. It was like, can you figure out how active campaign works? Because I sure as hell don't want to figure that out. So, (laughs) and, and the funny thing is about this is this is something we actually had talked about before. So once Rewired was growing and he was working as an electrical engineer and enjoying it, but not loving it and not necessarily loving his hour and a half commute to from Atlanta to Swanee every day to be in a cubicle farm. He really loved his coworkers, um, still talks. He was actually talking to some of his coworkers today about an electrical engineering project. So um, they still they still chit chat all the time. So he had really great coworkers and, and a good job, like a, a good, solid job. But we had talked about, like, what would it look like for him to come help me and be sort of my CTO, my chief technology officer, um, so I could focus on the fun design stuff. But that never seemed responsible, right? Before COVID, it was like, oh, what, you're going to go leave your, your great engineering job to go work for your wife? Um, there's a, there's a big stigma to that too. So, but when he got furloughed and, and things got really uncertain, um, there were layoffs were happening as well. So, I mean, I I think a a good, I don't know about his team, but like 30% or something of the engineers got laid off. Don't quote me on that, but, um, something like that. Um, so layoffs were happening and there was uncertainty there. And after this seven-week furlough, and he had been working with me, and we're like, oh, this is actually, I was like, this is, I, I mean, I kept him busy 40 hours a week, for sure. Like, I had plenty of stuff for him to do, and he was learning a lot and really enjoyed it um, a whole lot more than um, than kind of working for another company. And I think what what he really loved is he said, he you know, he felt like he was working for the family, which he was, working for the family business, and like his... His hours and his time and his energy was going toward us and not going toward a third party. Um, so he that really that really struck him and it felt good for him. So at the end of that seven weeks, they asked for him to come back. He we actually expected that maybe he was going to get laid off, but they wanted him back, and he said no, thank you. Actually, which was um, scary, super scary because we were officially down in income. 
and living in a relatively fancy neighborhood in Atlanta, like in-town neighborhood in Atlanta. Um, we had just renovated a beautiful house there and realized, like, we probably, this mortgage is probably not a great idea. We, it was just so much uncertainty, right? We were just starting the second cohort. The second cohort was really tough to fill up, actually. It was our smallest cohort because that was that summer. I mean, think about that summer during COVID. Like, nobody wanted to pay for training. I mean, it was just everything. There was so much uncertainty. So making that investment, it was it was tough for people. So we knew we could make it work, but we started looking at, okay, maybe this house that we renovated, we've, and we've done house flipping before, so that was not our first renovation, but this one we were like, we're actually going to live in this renovation and it's going to be our forever home. And there were other things that were going on in the neighborhood too that we were like, oh, maybe, I mean, it's just, it was a very loud neighborhood, let's say that. So we were wanting some more peace and quiet and a lower, you know, lower cost of living so that we would have time to say, okay, we're down in income and we need to integrate this, this business that has supported one person really nicely now needs to support two people. We looked at all sorts of little places, little towns around Atlanta. We didn't want to do the suburbs. Um, We were just going to skip the suburbs and go out into the countryside. And we ended up right in between a little town called Ellijay and Blue Ridge, right, you know, at the, right where all these tr- beautiful trails are. And um, I mean, it was just a really great financial move. And it turned out to be a really great mental health move as well. Um, just having so much nature around, we go hiking all the time. And we now have this kind of time to actually really become entrepreneurs. So I haven't had to take on a whole lot of client work. I've been able to focus on the certification because we have this runway and we were, you know, able to kind of shift around our uh, living expenses. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. And I think you had so many great tips in there for anybody who's trying to make a big move and trying to figure that out of what are the things that you need to consider and kind of lay out on the table to make a make a decision, but also see the opportunities for how you can make it work. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you have to, like, if you want to do something hard or like do, like, if you want to start a business, you have to look at like, well, where can we get money from? And we were like, we are sitting on a gold mine right now and we love this house, but maybe we can have a house that is, we could, I mean, we, we cut our mortgage in half and we're able to take a large chunk of change out to be able to put in the bank as a runway that would basically give us about a year of living expenses so that we didn't have to, we could really focus on just creating a really great product and not have to worry about like, oh, like, do I need to go and take on a, take on a project just so we can keep the lights on? So yeah, we were, we were in a good position and definitely very privileged to have been in that position where we were (laughs) sitting on, sitting on an asset that we could sell. Um, But we, you know, we'd been playing with real estate. We actually had a piece of land um, as well. So we kind of liquidated everything. Um, And we had also sold other flips. So just like doing the real estate stuff, which I guess was also kind of entrepreneurial, had put us in a position where we could, yeah, liquidate, move to our little cabin and sort of hole up as hermits for a while um, with our actually good internet. That's that's when we were worried about the internet. But um, here we are. I'm in my closet and we're just, uh, sounds, sounds pretty good, eh? Yeah, no, it's perfect. It's perfect. 
I mean, I've been up to your house. It's not a little cabin. It's a really nice house um, with that has a gorgeous view. And like, yes, we do have the, the windows are amazing. We do have that mountain view. It does not get old. It's just it's no. It's, I, yeah, I can stare out that window a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it, it seems so, so peaceful and gives you the peace of mind to be able to pursue these other endeavors. Yeah. And I think there is this balance between burning the boats <laughs> and having enough security to where you can show up confidently. And it's kind of playing off those two things. And for those that don't know the phrase burning the boats, it's what's the story? Is it you're on an island and I've only heard <laughs> and about you're stranded? Burning, I've only heard burning the bridge. <laughs> oh, oh no, don't this is not that. <laughs> okay. We, it's okay. So I'm probably going to butcher it, but you're stranded on an island and you have boats there, but the boats aren't able to actually take you to shore. Like they're not that great of boats, but you keep, you keep them there in the hopes that you'll use them to get, to get off the island. But mm. really what you need to do is, okay, maybe not burn the boats, but like, tear down the boats and use them to build a city or a small town Uh for yourself yeah um yeah at least a hut yeah and like make the most of what you have and like be able to Mm. commit to this island instead of hedging your bets on this like half in half out situation yeah i mean that's exactly what it was it was i mean when once once we realized that Luke was also going to be location independent. And we also realized that there was a there was quite a bit of probably a status thing on where we were, where we were living as well. Like to be like right in the city and have like eight places we could walk to to get an avocado toast with a running egg on it. Like, <laughs> And then when all those places shut down, you know, there was no going to the boutiques. There was no I mean, I mean, and I love the restaurants in that area, throwing no shade on those avocado toasts with the chaga mushrooms and the runny egg. But we realized we could make that at home. And we realized that we were just like after living two months in that neighborhood, three months, four months in that neighborhood without any of those amenities, we realized that we were just as happy. And we also realized that, yeah, we were going really all in with building this um, this movement, like just realizing, like, I just I think OUX is so freaking important. I think it can save. I, I know what my career was like before. I know how frustrated I was. I know how frustrated a lot of UX designers are right now. And I think it can not only help make people's careers more meaningful and fun and make them build better products. I truly believe it can help us make more humane technology that just like works with the human mind. I am constantly, I've said this on Twitter before. I've said this so many places, but anybody who feels like this, this market is saturated, that there's too many UX designers and everybody's trying to get a UX design job. I do understand that feeling because there are like, we have now all these boot camps and all these trainings and people are getting into it. But how many times today have you been annoyed by technology? Like a seven maybe today, and it's been a good day. 
I mean, we are still, technology still sucks. Like, I think that as an industry, UX is right. failing. I think that we are not, we are not building software that is usable. I don't think Apple's building usable software. I think, <laughs> I think Apple, I think iPhones are frustrating a lot of the time. Google is making big fundamental mistakes. I mean, the largest companies in the world that are investing in design, investing millions and millions of dollars in design, are still building shitty software and shitty user experiences. And it's getting better, but I truly think OUX is going to help. So, yes, that's my soapbox there. But that was like, if we're going to go all in on this, and it's not just me, it's now my husband as well, and we're going to go in on this mission, like, it was not a hard decision to be like, let's sell the house and move to the country. Right. Our real friends will come visit us. It's 90 minutes. <laughs> I've been up there a few times just, yeah. you know, in case anyone's question if I'm a real one. <laughs> you a real one. You are definitely a real one. Definitely. Yes. Definitely. Yes. And I, and that's so true of like when you commit to what you're going to do, to what is important to you and letting, allowing everything else to adjust and move around you. And, and committing to that and being clear that that's, that's the direction that you're going in. And now you talked about how these companies and UX and how technology is still failing us. And so how can OUX, if I'm a designer and I'm in those situations and I'm frustrated, I, I don't feel like I'm making impactful change with the designs and the decisions that we're making, how does OUX help me do that? And how does it not just help me right now in the situation that I'm in today, but mm -hmm. in the future, tying it into future-proofing your career? Ah, uh, yes. So, okay. So one at a time, you might have to ask me that second part again. So how does it help you actually make meaningful change? Mm -hmm. It helps you move away from that surface level UI work. Surface level, like, there's the um, something called pace layers. So I think it was an architect. Oh gosh, I forget who it was. Um, Carrie Hayne talks about pace layers in in reference to uh, content. Um, but basically, it's the pace of change. How different things have different paces of change. So at the very like core level, you have. Okay, so you have nature at the bottom. <laughs> nature moves very slowly. Then you have culture. Okay, culture moves a little faster than nature, but pretty slow. Then you have governance. And anybody that's worked in government knows that government moves slow, but it's it moves faster than culture, though. Then you have infrastructure on top. Then you have commerce, and then you have fashion. Okay, your UI is your fashion, <laughs> right? That moves quickly. So you can, if you're just moving at that level, what you do this, you know, it, it very well could change before you even get into development um, if you're not really working with your developers or it could change within the next year or two, right? It's constantly being iterated on. And, and that's important. UI, good UI work is very, very important. I am not discounting that, but if it's not based on structure and information architecture. So there's a version of those pace layers for basically our industry, and I didn't find that immediately, but basically you have information architecture moves much slower <laughs> than UI, all right? So you're literally are getting deeper and you're making more long lasting change. So just think about even just the architecture of your house. So you might iterate on the 
like the arrangement of your furniture or even like switch out the the sink faucet or a light fixture you might do that you know you could do that every year or like you change the paint color no big deal but do you really want to be moving your rooms around on a regular basis like do you want to move the kitchen like hopefully you never have to move the kitchen <laughs> and if you move the kitchen once you hope you really plan well for that okay same thing with information architecture and database design. Like you are making that, it, it's the same thing as like, wow, our kitchen really should be over here and it would make everything so much better if our kitchen was over here. Let's figure out how to move the kitchen over here versus changing the paint color. You're not doing as much transformational change and long-term change as you would be as if you can come into an organization and say, holy shit, y'all are missing a bathroom. Like this is the reason that this sucks because there's not a bathroom and the bathroom should go here. And actually your kitchen needs to go over here. That's more expensive work a lot of the time. But the thing is, is with OUX, there's ways to do it. You can do it scalably. You can do that kind of transformational work, but you can do it into a single feature or a single page. It's always going to have more impact. The um, kind of the wider your, um, your reach is going to be. But, um, but you can start small. It is definitely possible to start small. So that's how we, as far as from my professional, what motivates me professionally is not necessarily making things beautiful. I love to have, and there are people out there that that is what is meaningful for them. And that is great. We need more people that like to puzzle solve and click puzzle pieces in place instead of taking a bunch of puzzle pieces that might be <laughs> okay i'm mixing metaphors here um i'm gonna use something that i keep using uh, what something that andrea newhoff said on the oux podcast she was talking about what kind of what it was like before using object or in ux and she said it was like putting a puzzle together with all the pieces face down mm. and then she thought about it for a second and was like no actually it's sometimes it's even like we're all putting different puzzles together. So everybody on the team is putting together a different puzzle with the pieces face down and doesn't know they're putting together a puzzle. So OUX basically helps make sure that everybody's putting the same puzzle together and the pieces are face up. So you're going to make much better change. You're going to click things into place a whole lot more effectively, a lot faster. And um, instead of kind of like taking a bunch of puzzle pieces that are the that are face down and trying to sort of shove them together and then maybe paint on top of them to make them look pretty. Right. And I mean, from what you're saying too, it's, it's more sustainable design and your example of the company that didn't need to change their navigation until recently Yeah. of that works. That's scalable. That's sustainable. You're not wasting design efforts, development efforts, and, you're doing it intentionally. Yeah. And you're doing, I mean, this is all, go. this all comes back to a user-centered process. I mean, you're taking, you're taking the user's mental model um, or conceptual model. <laughs> we don't need to go into the difference between those, but you're taking that model of like how a user actually thinks about their world and you're manifesting it on screen. So I give the example of a teacher. So I worked a lot in ed tech and if I'm building a piece of software for a teacher depending on what problem I'm actually trying to solve, that piece of software is most likely going to... A teacher has a picture of, of his or her world. So they have students 
and they have lessons and they have homework assignments and they have standards and they have parents and they have standardized tests and they have other teachers. Like there's might be like three or four more other things, but like that's basically what their world is made up of classes. They have classes, of course. I don't know if I said that yet. And like all those things have relationships. Students have many classes if they're upper school. Students have one class if they're lower school. A class always has many students. Well, maybe sometimes a class has one student because this is like our one-on-one study time or something. So, and then students have standards that they have completed or not completed. And lessons are um, geared toward teaching different standards. Like, that's just the truth. That's just the truth of a teacher's world. So if I am going to solve a problem for a teacher that has to do with those things, helps her manage class attendance or something like that, and contact parents when class attendance isn't happening. So let's say that that's the problem. Just made that up. It's probably going to include students and parents and classes. And when that teacher opens up that piece of software, all those things should be readily recognizable. Like, oh, there's my students and there's my classes. And I can go and I can go to the class and I can see all my students. And if I click on a student, I can see their parents. And then I can contact the parent. And if we break that, because we don't, because there's, if we don't figure out what all the things are, and what all the relationships are between those things, there's no way we'll translate it properly into the system. And then... Ooh, that's so good. There's just no way. There's no way. If if it's not clear on the team, to the entire team, if we don't have that 100% agreed on, what are the things and how do all these things connect to each other? And we try to build software without getting that shared understanding. There's no way that the screen will communicate that to the end user, and you're, it's just going to be an uphill battle to make it, make it understood. Now you're going to have to do a lot of explaining. You're going to have to throw in tool tips, and you're going to have to throw in onboarding to be like, oh, here's the, this thing is, and we're going to come up with a totally new concept that you've never heard of because marketing, right? So now we have, we call them groups instead of classes, and a group is like kind of like a class, but it's not really a class. Um, yeah, and so if if we're building based on a bunch of use cases and flows, but it's not easily readily clear to the user what the things are, it's going to be hard for them to use it. Well, and that that effective communication within a team of being able to communicate what the different objects are, how they're related to each other, and you know, ultimately, what are we building and and how it gets. It is directly translated into your designs and into what the user experiences and their understanding. And so it's like effective communication within your team translates to effective communication to the users via what you're building. Oh, my gosh. Yes. You said it. You said it better than me. Yes. (laughs) I can just summarize. (laughs) Awesome. So then I have one last question for you which is a scenario question of you're in an elevator with another designer and they turn to you and ask, how can I be happy in my career? What do you tell them? Oh my gosh. You're just like handing it to me. It's like, I, I, (laughs) (laughs) uh, take my OUX certification course. Just take it. Learn. Maybe you don't need to take the course. Google OOUX. I mean, I I know it sounds silly, and I, I, I think I said at the top of our time together, like, 
this is the lens that I see the world through. So I know, I know that I'm biased, but I know that this is how I became happy in my career is I started, I got to the point where I had that, had that moment. We're going to bring it full circle. It's going to be so nice where I had that moment, that moment, like the first or second week with blue cross blue shield. I wish I had a picture of that diagram. I know I have it somewhere, but where I was drawing what I was hearing, I was building a, a conceptual diagram of what I was hearing and everybody in the room was getting alignment. We were all coming together to understand what we were supposed to build. And it felt really good. It felt that. And I was like, this is what I want out of my career. And now, because I've basically, I've just been chasing that, that feeling of being able to synthesize what I was hearing, synthesize these com all this complexity into like really kind of clear pictures, clear visuals that everybody could agree on and it could click. And I was just like seeing the light bulbs go off. People being like, yes, that is what we need to build. Not screens, though. Again, not, I wasn't, design, I wasn't tr putting any screens on the, on the whiteboard. And that's really, I mean, I've been chasing how to, how to harness that feeling. And now when I work with my clients, it is all that feeling. <laughs> it's 100% that feeling. And it's really fun. It's really fun to bring, to bring people together, to br get shared understanding, to really work through the, like the, the crunchiness of the problem, not just like, well, let's play the bring me a rock game where I'm like, is this the UI that you're looking for? And they're like, no, it's not quite the UI. Can you move that over here? Can you, oh, is this, and then I go back and I like move things around kind of like designing in the dark with my rusty old flashlight. Is this what you're looking for? Like, that's not fun for me. That's actually dehumanizing for me. And what made, that's what made me so frustrated. So I would say my advice is like figure out if that's what you want. Some people listening, that might not be what they want. They don't want to be a facilitator. That's totally cool. It's not for everybody. Being a facilitator and helping people come together and helping people get clarity on what we were actually building in like a kind of fun and game-like way and being able to facilitate that is just gold. So if that sounds like fun to you, I would say Google OAUX, look into it, OAUX.com. Um, there's a lot of resources there to get started, totally free resources. So that would be my advice. Perfect. And and you'll be talking about this at UX Hustle Summit. Oh, yeah. yeah we didn't talk about the future stuff. Oh, we did. <laughs> we we talked a lot about future stuff. <laughs> we did? Okay, good. Yeah, we did. I made sure. Right. <laughs> I might have blacked out. <laughs> Yes, yes. We'll be talking about um, the five. The f So we actually voted on it from my newsletter. Do you want to hear about what five things? Yeah. Okay. Tell me. All right. So we voted on. So these were we there was like I did a, I did a newsletter series where I talked about like top five ways to um, future proof your career. Of course, they all came back to OUX. So I did 10 of those and then we voted on which ones kind of like which ones were the winners. Um, so the winners are the one that got the got the most votes was to, as a top way to future proof your career, make information architecture and deep problem solving fun for the team. Run information architecture workshops, workshops that are approachable, non-intimidating, game-like, and super effective. Everything I was talking about. So I'll tell you, be talking about that. Um, and then uh, how to understand the back-end system. 
another way to future proof your career so that you can design your own. So getting up to speed on database design by learning some good no code tools. Um, designing solid foundations, make your design stand the test of time. And then number four is going to be become an expert at the information layer, the real uh, intellectual property between the tech layer and the experience layer. Um, there's another contender too, which is be ready for what's next, as in VR, AR, and voice. So I might talk about that one as well, but I will definitely be talking about those first four that I mentioned as how to future-proof your career. Perfect. Going into those in a lot more detail. Perfect. And I feel like everyone got bites of each of those just now. So that's perfect. And yeah, go get your ticket to UX Hustle Summit so you can hear even more about it and design your sustainable career. So Sophia, where else can people find you? I know OUX.com, social media. At Sophia VUX on the, on the Twitters. I'm pretty active there. Feel free to um, friend me on link, friend me on LinkedIn, <laughs> connect with me on LinkedIn. <laughs> it's I'm pretty easy to find Sophia V Prater. Uh, yeah, but yeah, OUX.com is going to be your friend. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amanda. It's fun. Yay. Thank you for listening to the UX Hustle podcast. If you love this episode, please write a review and subscribe. To continue these conversations, you can follow us on Instagram at the UX Hustle. Join our Slack community through the link in our show notes. Or join us at the UX Hustle Summit September 24th through the 25th. It's our annual virtual conference, and it's the only UX career conference. So we'd love to see you there.